We're in Malachi chapter 1, <clears throat> continuing our study through the book of Malachi. So if you want to uh, have the book of Malachi open, it's Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. I'm going to read the scripture this morning sort of in uh, the body of the message. So I'm going to begin <clears throat> our time together this morning by reading Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. As we've mentioned before, if you're having a hard time finding the book of Malachi, it's really easy. Find the book of Matthew, go back one. Uh, and, you're, and you've found it. Um, here is what it says in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord to ho of the hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. Uh, but you say, how have we despised your name? by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have, we all, uh, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us, with such a gift from your hand. Will he show you favor? Will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. So as Malachi typically does, the passage begins with sort of a question and answer. The, the Lord asks questions and the people respond in questions in sort of a way of, of challenging the Lord's suggestion. The Lord says, listen, fathers have honor and bosses have honor. Where's my honor? And they respond by going, how have we dishonored you? We don't know what you're talking about. And he goes on to explain it in detail. So the passage this morning is about worship, but in particular we want to recognize this passage is about powerful worship. Powerful worship. And that's the title for the message today. And I want to begin also by reading uh, some lyrics uh, to a song. It's a Christian song. It's a song you may have heard. I am blessing you by only reading uh, the lyrics and not attempting to sing it. And here is what the words are to this song that is also called Words. They've made me feel like a prisoner. They've made me feel set free. They've made me feel like a criminal, but they've made me feel like a king. They've lifted my heart to places I've never been, and they've dragged me down back to where I began. Words can build up. Words can break down. They can start a fire in your heart, or they can put it out. And what we have to understand about words, and then also what we have to understand about worship, is they have power. So we have to understand words, they have the ability to build somebody up. We can say something encouraging. We can say something uh, powerful and something important. But we can also, with our words, tear people down and destroy their hearts and destroy their hopes. It turns out worship is powerful in the same way. Worship has the power to build up and glorify and magnify the name of the Lord. And what we discover here also is worship has the power to deeply offend the Lord. All worship, I would suggest, is powerful. All worship is powerful. It either pleases God or it doesn't. But there isn't neutral worship. There is either worship that makes God pleased or there is worship that offends God, but there is not worship where God is sort of, eh. 
All worship is powerful. And that's what he's saying here. He says, listen, a, a, a son will typically have, in some sense, honor for his father. Uh, certainly varying degrees depending on the relationship, but most children will have some sense of honor for their father in the same way with an employee. An employee will have some sense of honor for their, for their boss if for no other reason the boss is signing the paycheck. And God is saying to his people, I am receiving no honor from you. You are not honoring me because your worship is disdainful and is offensive. And they say, well, well, how is our worship offensive? And the fact is, they were offering offerings on the altar that were offensive. God had given them relatively detailed instructions about the kinds of ways they were to worship God. And they were to worship God with the best of their herd and the best of their produce and the best of their harvest and the best of their their wine and the best of their olive oil and the best of their grain. And what they were doing is the people were bringing to God the leavings, the leftovers. They were bringing to God those things which they didn't otherwise want or have use for. And they thought, well, I've got no other use for this item. I may as well take it to God and offer it to him uh, as an offering. And the issue here is not that God needed healthy sheep. The issue isn't that God was out of bread and so he needed high-quality grain or that he was out of wine and so he needed them to provide drink offerings. The issue is the worship that they extended was a reflection of their heart. The issue here was not the stuff on the altar. The Bible makes quite clear in the Psalms, God says, I have the cows on a thousand hills. I don't need your cows. But what brings God delight is the heart. And what God was seeing was in the heart of the worshipers a sense of whatever, a sense of burden, a sense of what a pain this is. And, and their heart revealed that they didn't really honor God. And because their heart didn't honor God, their worship brought God displeasure. He makes a little comparison there. It's kind of a funny comparison when you think about it. He says this, take to your governor what you're bringing to me. And this was very typical back in those days. The governor would receive gifts, and it was one of the ways that the people uh, would be able to curry favor with him. It's, nowadays, what do we call that? I can't remember. Bribing. Uh, back then, it, was, uh, it wasn't frowned upon. Nowadays, uh, we frown upon it. Um, I mean, we still do it, but it's, we, we say, oh, we shouldn't do that, and then we do it. Um, we just don't talk about it. Uh, so back then it was considered, oh yeah, you would give your governor uh, gifts and he would receive them. And then if a, a case came up before him and he said, oh man, he gave me that really good sheep that one time. I think I'm going to decide it in his favor. And, uh, and, and God is saying, I got an idea. Take the thing you're going to bring me and, that, and, and take, that to your, take that to your governor. See how he rolls with that. See how excited he gets about that, that nasty old sheep you brought in here. The gunk oozing out its eyes, it can't see out of its one leg, is kind of limping along. Or, or it doesn't even have legs, they like strapped wheels to its hind corners. You seen that? It's like dragging its. That's terrible. Take it to the governor. See, he'd be like, oh, really, you're bringing me this. Go to jail. He would be displeased. And God is saying, why do you think I'm different? Why do you think I am neutral on your worship? Why do you think I have casual disregard for what's going on? In fact, he even says it somewhat sarcastically in verse 9. He says, now, entreat the favor of God that he might be gracious to us. And this is going to be troubling for us, but we need to wrestle with it a little bit. 
He's saying, listen, we have casually approached worship with a heart of somewhat a disdain for God or at least a, a casual disinterest in God, and now we want to entreat upon God for his graciousness. And, and try and do that with your governor. Have casual disdain or disinterest in God and then entreat him for justice, see what, what happens. And, and the question he wants to challenge the worshipers to think about is, are you approaching God with a casual a disinterest or even dishonor and then seeking him for his things? Why would that relationship in your mind be considered okay? What's the issue? What's the difference between the governor and God? Well, the issue is you can see the governor, right? You can present him the gift. He gets a look on his face that gets all like, what are you doing? And we can't see God. And so what we discover is heart worship to God is fundamentally a question of faith. Do we fundamentally recognize and believe God is who he says he is? Do we agree that God is God of the universe? And do we agree that one day we will all stand before him? And if this is the case, our worship will reflect that. But to the degree that we kind of think God is this far distant far disconnected reality, our worship is always going to be very disinterested because it doesn't seem very immediate that God is standing in front of us. And so worship is primarily a question of faith. Do I believe the reality that God is king and he is standing in our midst? If I believe that, I will treat him with much greater honor than even the governor. Powerful worship. Worship has the power to offend God. We are always worshiping. The question is, are we worshiping God? And then if we are worshiping God, are we worshiping him in a manner that brings him honor? Or are we worshiping him in a manner that offends? And primarily that becomes a question of what's going on in my heart. Not what I'm doing with my voice or with my time or my money or my energy. The question is, what is going on in my heart? And we offer offensive worship to God when our heart to God is casually disinterested or maybe even bound up in displeasure for the way he has been doing things. We are always worshiping, and it either pleases God or displeases him. There is no neutral on this, unless I'm reading this wrong, and I don't think I am. Powerful worship. Worship has the power to offend. Let's keep going. What would worship be like if we understood it to be connected to God and his power? What would worship be, uh, be like if we connected it to God and his power? Powerful worship, verses 10 and 11, power to believe. Let me read verses 10 and 11. You can follow along with me. Yeah, I think it's up on the screens. There you go. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle the fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Powerful worship, power to believe. Think about it this way if we're reading this passage right. It's going to bother you. Are you ready? There are churches all over this valley, all over this world, that God woke up this morning and said, man, I hope they don't show up. Man, I hope somebody is just smart enough to put something in front of the door so nobody can get in there. 
Is that bothersome? I mean, am I reading it wrong? He said, look, look, I wish someone would just shut the doors. Seriously, it would be better if you just didn't show up and worship. Because what you're doing is so offensive. It would be better if you stayed home, and then we'd at least be all on the same page. You don't want to worship. The question is, did he want us to show up here today or not? Of course, he wanted us to show up here today. The question is, did we show up in a manner that is going to bring him uh, glory? And we're not even necessarily talking only about showing up to worship God in church. It's did we worship him day in and day out in a way that brings him honor. So the question is, how do we worship in a way that God says, open those doors? We worship him in a way that is faithful, power to believe. Uh, Think of it this way. Uh, There's a a set of books came out. It's called the Chronicles of Narnia. You've heard of this book, Uh, these books? Uh, In one of the books, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't read it, but I don't think I will. The Prevency children are in this big giant mansion, and they find out that they can go through a wardrobe and get to the world of Narnia. And um, the, the fantastic thing about the wardrobe is where it goes. Nowhere in the book, and I've read the books dozens of times, nowhere in the book do they spend hours and hours examining the wardrobe and admiring its craftsmanship and admiring the workings of the hinges and the latches and how well it holds the clothes up off the ground. No, the reason the wardrobe is incredible is because of where it goes. And the reason worship is powerful is because we worship God. It's not because the worship itself is a thing. The reason worship is important and insignificant is because we have the opportunity to present something to God himself. The power of worship is God, and the way our worship has power is not... The songs we sing, it's not the building we sit in, it's not the things we do with our time. The power of worship is God, and that's why the only way for worship to be powerful is for us to have trust in God, fundamentally a faith in who God is and what he is up to. Glory is not found in the context of our worship. It's not found in the context of the building. It's not found in the context of what kind of person I am. Glory is found in who God is. Because he says, I have no pleasure in you, it reveals a heart issue. Look at what God is up to in verse 11. Here's the goal of God for our worship. Are you ready to find out? God had a goal this morning for what worship should be like. This is his goal. I don't know what your goal was for worship. If you're like most of us, you didn't have a goal. Let's roll in there, knock this thing out, and get going with our day. Verse 11. Here is God's goal in our worship this morning. For from the rising of the, of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. So what you want to do is picture this globe that we live on. I'm not a flat earther. I believe this thing is round. All right, and this thing is spinning on an axis. I don't know if you're into science, but apparently this thing is turning, right? And so right now the sun is up here. I, now I'm going to try and go slow for you. There are parts of this world that are in darkness right now. I know, Mike. I don't. don't believe it? Go on the interwebs. You can find out. You'll prove it. All right. So what the, So here's the picture that's being painted by the Bible. The, the globe is turning, and the sun is coming up somewhere all the time. And God is picturing the sun coming up, and as it's coming up, it's like a new tune of worship. 
I mean, if you could imagine it in this way, it's like this, the sun is coming up on the west coast, and now he's getting, at least on the Pacific Northwest, uh, maybe some English worship and some Spanish worship, and maybe up uh, in, in some of the bigger cities, other uh, languages. But then it rolls around to the, to the Middle East, and then it rolls around to the, to the Near East, and then it rolls around to Africa. And, and the whole time this thing is spinning, and he's just going, I, as this thing goes around, I want worship the whole time, 24-7. So the question becomes, when it rolls around to you and me, his question is, are you ready to go? See, we think worship is, is, is we boil it down to just the existence of, of the, the immediate me and the immediate us. And, and was it a song I liked or was the, the vibe good or, or whatever it might be? And God said, no, you've missed the whole goal. The goal is a chorus of worship that's global and never ending. And the question is, do you fit in? And the question of whether or not we fit in has nothing to do with our vocal cords, has nothing to do with how much money we give or how much we serve. It's a question of what? What's going on in our heart? Is our heart moved by the notion that the creator of God is anticipating our time in the song to start and we jump in and say, let's get after it? Or is our heart going, Lord, I don't even know what you're up to. I don't even know why we're here. Powerful worship is power to believe that God is doing something bigger than us, that we have faith to worship him who is worthy of the entire planet praising him right now. So we have to understand God a little bit better than we do. If everybody on planet Earth stopped everything they were doing and worshiped God, he would still deserve more worship. That's the God we're worshiping. So the issue of faith is, the governor I can see, the powers of this world I can see, God is difficult to see. It requires faith in my heart to recognize God is the creator of the universe, and he deserves my participation in global worship. Even if my participation is the smallest little bit, the question is, in my heart, do I recognize God is worthy of it? His desire is for all creation to worship him all the time. His desire should actually also be our desire. Powerful worship is the power to believe that God is indeed the great God. Look at what it says at the end of verse 11. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. My name will be great among the nations. What is he saying? He's describing here a time where God's glory will be lifted up in worship to such a degree that everybody will say, that guy, that guy's name is great. His worship is clear. So here's a question maybe we could ask ourselves. I'm going to bother you again. Some of you are going, well, you haven't stopped. If all the world knew about God's greatness... If all the world knew about God's greatness was how his greatness is described by our worship, how great would they imagine he is? You see what I'm saying? If all somebody could know about God's greatness is that they watched us worship, would they say, that's a great God? Or would they say, it's an average God? What would they say? Now, again, this has nothing to do necessarily with what's going on the outside. The question primarily is, 
in our heart. The question is not, am I acting like God great? The question is, in my heart do I recognize God is great. His name ought to be the greatest name. His name ought to be elevated above all other names. This has happened before. A uh, little history lesson. King David was king of Israel, and he wanted to build God a temple. And uh, God said, you can't build me a temple. And David said, okay. And for, there was a number of reasons, uh, but God said, you can't build me a temple. So David, uh, it makes quite clear in the book of First Chronicles, uh, David saved up to pay for the temple. Uh, so David, his entire life, he collected gold, he collected bronze, he collected uh, silver, uh, he collected um, wood, uh, he hired stone cutters. Uh, he actually even had the, the drawings for the temple made up. He drew out the plans for the temple, and he told his son Solomon in First Chronicles, I, I got these plans from God. That's a nice way of him saying, don't change them. They're my plans. Don't mess with them, kiddo. And uh, he said, well, he wouldn't be condescending to to uh, his son Solomon. Of course he was. He stood up and he said, listen, everybody, I can't build the temple. My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and so I've saved up for him. I mean, do what he can. All right? It says that in, in Chronicles that David then handed all, over, all this stuff over to Solomon. And then at the end of his life, he told the people of Israel this. Not only have I saved up the national treasure to pay for this temple, all of my own personal treasure I'm giving away. Solomon, you're broke. Good luck with that. Now, he did fine. Don't worry about Solomon. So he makes all these preparations, right? So then Solomon builds the temple, and he appoints the singers as David outlined, and he appoints the gatekeepers as David outlines, and he puts all the furnishings, furnishings as David outlined, and he followed precisely what his father by the Spirit told him to do, and then a woman, a royal figure from Africa, the Queen of Sheba, comes up to visit Solomon, and she sees Solomon and the nature of the kingdom, which is designed to focus its attention on God himself. And how does the Bible describe her reaction? Do you remember what it says? The breath was taken from her. She, she lost her breath when she examined the worship of the people of God when they were obedient to the things of God. When she saw God being worshipped as God, her breath was taken away. She said, this is a great God. And the question is, do we have the power to believe this is a great God in our heart of hearts and see that move its way out as we express worship through singing, as we express worship through serving others, as we express worship even in our job, doing a good job for our employer and working diligently at home? Are we willing to believe God is the great God and his name should be great in all the nations. Powerful worship is power to believe. Last thing, worship is grace. It is an act of God's grace that he allows us to worship him. Uh, God is great and he enjoys our worship, but we need to pay attention. God doesn't need our worship. He is the great king. Look at excuse me, Malachi 1, 12, 13, and 14. We'll finish this passage here. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that it, that is, its food may be despised. And you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And, and you bring these things as your offering. 
Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Pay attention. Last, verse, last sentence is the important one. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Powerful worship, power of the king. Now, among sports fans, there's a certain kind of fan called the bandwagon fan. Anybody know what a bandwagon fan is? This is a person, as soon as the team is in the Super Bowl, all of a sudden they show up and they've got Kansas City uh, shirts on and caps. They've got a car painted red and white. They, all of a sudden, how long have you been a fan of Kansas City? Oh, my whole life. Oh, yeah? Who's Christian Okoye? Christian, I'm sorry, who? Some of you don't know that. that some of you may know that. Anyway. So bandwagon fan, cheers on the team who is winning recently, and as soon as they're no longer winning, a la Golden State Warriors, um, who cares about them, right? What have you done for me lately? And this is exactly what we're talking about here in terms of worship, but it's sort of the reverse. God is saying here, verse uh, 14, end of it, I am a great king. Pay attention. He doesn't say, I'm going to be a great king. He doesn't say, boy, if I get enough followers, I'm a great king. He doesn't say, if people worship him well enough, I'm a great king. What does he say? I'm a great king. And, and he's not saying it the way some egotistical maniac would say it. He's not saying it trying to convince himself he's a great king. He's stating facts. I'm a great king. My name will be feared among the nations. What is something we know will happen? His name will be feared among the nations. Is it that way today? Ish, right? Maybe. Is it feared among this room? I don't know. That's up to you. But what God is saying is, a day is going to come when everybody on planet Earth is going to say, that's a great king. How good a king is he? I'm scared to death. That's how, good, that's how great a king he is. I'm not sure if he's going to kill me or leave me alive. I'm not sure which one I would prefer. And what God is saying is our worship is an opportunity for us to recognize the that day reality right now. That one day everyone is going to call out his name and say, that's a great king. And he's saying, we have the opportunity of calling out his name. That's a great king when nobody else can say it. That we're calling out his name, that's a great king, to such a degree, everybody else around us is saying, simmer down, okay? Sure, you got your religion, but calm down. Okay, everybody needs a little church, we get it, but let's not be crazy. And, we'll, and our response ought to be, have you met the king? You have not yet seen crazy. You say, well, no, we need to have proper propriety in our worship. I think you hold your hands like this. I don't know how you do it. I remember a story in the Bible. King David uh, was bringing the Ark of the Covenant up, and uh, they were singing, they were making offerings, and this is not the time when the guy died. That's a bad worship service. <laughs> Stranger things have happened. Um, he's dancing around like a crazy person. Why was he dancing around? Does he like to dance? I'm, well, certainly he liked to dance. Why was he dancing around? Because he recognized the great king. He danced around to such a degree that his wife, who didn't like the king, that is God, saw him dance around like a crazy person. That you need to keep the religion under wraps, David. 
I mean, let's, I mean, sure, we want to tell people to follow God and, and uh, you know, kind of, but let's keep it reasonable. And David says something about her dad, and that was a total burn. You know, your dad who was the king, but had it ripped from him because he didn't worship God? I will make myself even more debased than this to recognize he is the great king. Power of the king is what fuels our worship. Look at how the people of Israel were responding to God. They were profaning the table. They were coming into the temple and going, oh, not this again. They were coming. We talked about this last week. This temple was, was beaten down. They, I mean, they had rebuilt it, but it wasn't nice. It was sort of average. It, it was, they'd come in, and, and then everybody was bringing offerings in that weren't great, and the priests weren't telling people to take the bad offerings back. The priests were like, yeah, that's, your blind old uh, lamb is fine. And, and that, I don't know if you know how it worked, but in the worship, some of it was sacrificed, but others of it were eaten. And so everybody's like, is this the diseased lamb I have to eat for worship? And they were turning their nose up at worship, the whole thing. And, and then their hearts are going, what a pain this is. Why do we have to, is there any way we could just do this at home? Is there any way that, that, God, can I just write a check and send it somewhere? Because coming all the way down there, if I'm going to come down there, it would be nice if the temple was at least nice the way Solomon's temple was. Or at least they put out some halfway decent food to eat. But what, what it is, they were despising it. Look at verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this is. God calls us to worship him, and then we engage with him in prayer and, and reading his word and, and obeying him by serving others and, and by coming together as a body of believers. And, and if we're honest with ourselves in our hearts, we have had this thought more times than we're comfortable admitting, oh, my lands, what a pain. Are you serious, God? This is a weariness. This is a burden. How do we overcome this weariness? is we recognize the power of the king. This is the great king. The great and glorious king who left his throne and bled out on a cross. As Todd told us and reminded us this morning, he who knew no sin became sin. That we might receive the righteousness of God and the resurrection power of Christ. The payoff for worship is what? His holiness, his righteousness, the presence of the great king in our life day in and day out. And these people, along with us, we want a different kind of payoff. We want to pay off where I feel good, and we want to pay off where our problems go away, and we want to pay off where we get along with everybody. And God is saying the payoff is you have relationship with God through Jesus Christ a life of holiness and righteousness today and a life that will never end tomorrow. Powerful worship comes from a recognition that he is the powerful king that humiliated himself that we might receive life with him forever. The phrasing of this verse at the end of verse, or the sentence at the end of verse 14 is supposed to send, it's one of these verses that's supposed to send just a, a bit of sweat down the back of our neck. For I am the great king. And we go, oh, man, I don't think I've always been treating him like he's that. Can we go with great genie? Are there any other options? 
And God says, I am the great king, and my name will be feared among the nations. The opportunity, one of the profound ways we have an opportunity to worship God today is by faith in the time of small things. I don't care how big time you are. This is the time of small things. The most broke person in heaven is better off than any of us. Are we clear on that? So this is the time of small things. And the way we worship God in the time of small things is by worshiping him as the great king by faith. By faith recognizing this is the time of smallness and humility and grace. And there will never be a time in heaven where we get to worship God without seeing him again. The only time we have a chance to worship him by faith is right now. Once we get to glory, this time has passed. This is the opportunity to worship the great king when nobody else in the world is agreeing with us that he is the great king. The question is, will our worship honor the great king or will we sniff at the obligation of having to recognize he is God of the universe? The question is, what will go on our hearts? Do we believe it? Do we trust that God receives and hears our worship as King of Kings, <clears throat> excuse me, and Lord of Lords? Powerful worship. Number one, power to offend. Secondly, power to believe. And finally, power of the King. Just a couple of quick um, things to sort of maybe help settle our hearts on these things a little bit. A couple of questions. Have you ever written something, and then when you go back and look, you say, I have no idea what I was saying? But it could just be the day quill, too. I don't know. Um, always, we're always worshiping. And God hears all of our worship. Even the worship that's not great. And it is perfectly appropriate, and it is perfectly um, reasonable to repent of lax worship. He said, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, lame worship's better than no worship, right? What the passage say? Close the doors. It is perfectly appropriate as believers to come in and say, Lord, thank you for your grace to receive my worship and I don't want to be a lax worshiper, God. Open my heart to see that you are the great king, and you are worthy of praise that recognizes you are the great king. Second thing. Back to our globe picture. Again, I don't mean to offend the flat earthers, but in this time zone, on this globe, you and I are awake you and I have an opportunity to worship. It's our opportunity to jump into the gigantic choir, which is 24-7 worship of the king. And the question is, when it's our turn to worship, are we ready to go? Or are we going with the, I don't really like that song. Yeah, because that's what it's about. I almost went on a rabbit trail. You're welcome. I just ended it right there. Okay. Finally, finally this, the great king will not always wait. That's, we've been waiting a long time, some of us longer than others. He's not always going to be waiting. 
That day is coming. And by that day, I mean the day when he shows up, drops Mike, king of the world. On that day, all worship will ring out. On that day, all the world will recognize God as God. On that day, everyone's going to come correct, some to glory, some to great loss. Our experience of that day is determined by this day. And if you don't have a relationship with God where you get to recognize he is the great king by faith, that day is going to be a bad day. The only way for that day when he shows up to be a day of glory is to worship the great king on the day of small things and say, I am a sinner, I need forgiveness from the humiliated king of glory on the cross. And on that day, when he shows up in all his glory, we get to stand up and there will be a shout like has never been heard before. And today, we get to begin shouting.